Mekong River, the longest river in Southeast Asia, originating high in the Tibetan Plateau before flowing south through six countries, China, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, before finally entering the South China Sea. This is the Mekong region. The nutrient-rich waters create highly fertile land on either side of the river, perfect for rice growing. Such is the richness of the Mekong. The river supports the world's biggest inland fishery, feeding millions of people. And this region is one of the most biologically diverse in the world. It is home to rare, threatened and endemic species of animals and plants, as well as pristine forests. But unfortunately, the Mekong region has become a global epicenter for environmental crimes, illegal trafficking and trading of wildlife, timber and non-renewable resources like sand, rare earth elements and precious stones. There are now enormous flows of animals, plants and other invasive species and rampant activities like illegal sand mining. All of this are having devastating impact on local ecosystems. Much of the criminal behavior is a result of porous borders and pervasive corruption of public officials, as well as social and economic drivers. And despite some examples of successful investigations and enforcement actions against wildlife crime, the scale of the problem far outstrips the current level of efforts to address it. So how has the Mekong region become such a hub of environmental crimes? What's fueling them? and how can we effectively fight them? That's what we're going to talk about in this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thin Lei Wen. In this series, we'll take a deep dive onto the Global Organized Crime Index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. For this episode, we're focusing on environmental crimes in the Mekong region with Simone Haysom, a senior analyst with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, Julian Newman, campaigns director at the Environmental Investigation Agency, and Cheng Wen, founder and executive director of Vietnam-based non-governmental organization, Wild Act. I started by asking Cheng, who comes from the Mekong region, like myself, about why countries in this region have high rates of environmental crimes. I think that the uh, Mekong area is super rich in fauna and flora, but it also have a super high density of human populations. These countries in the Mekong area are developing countries, and they have been in the last few uh, decades, there has been a huge rise in economic developments, and their hunger for development leads to environmental degradations lead to activities such as illegal logging, poaching, trading, consumptions of natural resources and wild animals combined with the weak enforcement and corruptions what fuel this crime. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, Julian, I want to come to you next. What about when it comes to flora crimes? Because there's also rampant illegal logging, isn't there, in the Mekong region, particularly in terms of the rosewood trade. Um, why is that and how bad is it? Well, it's important to recognise that in the Mekong region, there are, there are some countries with quite dense forests containing valuable species. Uh, these countries are mostly sort of Laos, Cambodia, to a lesser degree Thailand, but also Myanmar. So these, these are the sort of source for a lot of the um, illegal logging that's taking place in the region. 
But also in the area, you also have countries like uh, Vietnam and to a lesser degree Thailand, which have quite large processing sectors for, for timber. A lot of this is export orientated. It's quite a high value income stream for these countries. And then, of course, you've got right on the doorstep there, you have China, which is a huge processor of timber and sucks in wood from all around the world, including from Mekong countries. That's really interesting. Now, Simone, I'd like you to touch on the third aspect of environmental crimes, which is about non-renewable resources, right? Um, The score for illegal trade of mineral resources and unregulated mining is perhaps not as high compared to the flora and fauna crimes, at least not right now, but it is a bit concerned nevertheless, isn't it? That's correct. What we see with non-renewable resource crimes is that they are often highly tied to issues of corruption and can also have extremely damaging effects on the environment and the processes of extraction, as well as uh, often be tied to human rights abuses or consequences which affect local livelihoods. And we see that across an, a couple of different uh, non-renewable resource crimes in the region as well as smuggling economies which have arisen leveraging regional differences in subsidies and taxes. This occurs particularly around oil in the region. While those subsidies and taxes are are not a cause of smuggling economies, they do create an incentive. And the fact that we are seeing smuggling economies arise says quite a lot about governance and management of the economy in ways that are fair to all participants and able to capture revenue for the state. So essentially having large criminalized smuggling economies around basic commodities like oil is often a symptom of larger problems. Mm. And and I want to follow up on that answer, Simone, and actually Julian and Chang as well. It would be great to hear your thoughts. You talked about, you know, corruption and governance um, as well in terms of, you know, non-renewable resources. Where does and how does organized crime fit into these activities? Perhaps if we can start with you first, Simone. Sure. For non-renewable resource crimes, as for many, if not most, environmental commodities, we see a great overlap between the licit economy and the illicit economy. And that generally means that trade chains are going to be mixed in that at some points they're going to be highly criminalized and then at other points they're going to be laundered into licit markets effectively. And what that means is that often criminal groups are only attached at specific points, but don't generally control the entire supply chain. That means that there's always an interplay between state embedded actors, illicit business and criminal groups at some point. For non-renewable resources, we see also some specific convergence with armed groups in Myanmar around gems, with oil smugglers around the oil smuggling economy between Vietnam and and Thailand, and specialized traffickers that are able to launder gems, which are often extracted by criminal groups in other parts of the world, as well as within the region, into big ostensibly illicit gem markets in the region. Mm. Cheng, what about in terms of um, wildlife trade? Is it something similar to what Simone has has just said? Yeah, um, I definitely think so. And also because of the illegal wildlife trade is, has so much profit, it's transnational crimes um, and globalization as well, so making it so easy for criminal network to transferring and bringing wildlife product from one place to another. I mean, having a look at Vietnam, the the trade of wildlife products um, only kind of start becoming a commercial trade in around 1980s after the war and the country was reformed and reopened. And 
this turned Vietnam from a source country, from a transit country, and now into a consumer countries where it's sucking in all of the natural resources from Laos, Cambodia, and also from Africa, um, or to other continents like South America as well. Mm, um, and I want to come back to you on the part about Africa later. But Julian, what about in terms of logging, you know, the, the link with organized crime and, and illegal logging? Has it always been present? Um, like what, uh, you know, Chang and Simone said with other aspects of um, environmental crimes? You know, we look at illegal logging in the Mekong. It's, it's not a matter of some locals speculatively going into a forest, taking down a few trees. You know, I hope they can sell them. This is a highly lucrative, highly organized business. Uh, logistically, it takes a lot to be able to extract large amounts of timber from these forests, transport them across borders to the market. And yeah, there's a, definitely a huge amount of uh, organized crime involved because a lot of money involved. Just to give you a couple of examples, we did a, a case a few years back when we went on the ground in, in an area of Cambodia, which was supposed to be protected forest. What we discovered was large-scale illegal logging, which had been organized by some Vietnamese companies in cahoots with various officials. They basically set out to log over 300,000 cubic meters of valuable wood from protected areas in Cambodia, take it across the border into Vietnam with the connivance of the authorities. We found out that there was huge bribery involved in this, in this scam, and you know, they were paying about you know, a total amount of about $13 million in kickbacks to various officials to get the wood to the market, and that reached right up to the, to the senior official in the province of GLI in Vietnam, where the timber was going into. This is one example of how these people came together to commit you know, a really huge environmental crime that went undetected until we exposed it because all the local officials were being paid off. And just one more example, um, obviously one of the major trade flows also is from Myanmar across into the Chinese border. Wood flowing across that border is totally illegal under Burmese rules. Timber can be exported from Yangon Seaport, but it's a, it's a huge trade over there. And we spent quite a lot of time digging around and we come across a syndicate which is called BDYA, a group of local business people and criminals who had come together to basically work out the, 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 the routes across the border and to basically ensure everyone was paid off along the routes. And, and they, they made a huge amount of money out of taxing all that wood that was coming uh, from Myanmar into China. So you can see this is a carefully orchestrated organized crime that fetches millions of dollars in profits for criminals. And it sounds like it is really quite big business, like you said, because it requires quite a lot of resources to cut those trees, transport them, and then put them on the market, right? Yeah, that's shocking. Chang, coming back to you again, right? Um, a lot of the wildlife trade in the Mekong region is centered around things like rhino horn, ivory, tigers, tiger body parts, and pangolin. But some of these species are actually not indigenous to the Mekong. Um, so what does that say about the Mekong? Like you said in your previous answer, you talked about, you know, sort of sucking in stuff from Africa and Latin America as well. If you can reference that, that would be great. I think that the countries in the Mekong region have, because they have such a rapid economic development, together with this increasing in level of wealth, they come with this for luxury products. And the luxury products here is doesn't confide in expensive fashion items, um, but it's also coming uh, with a base for wildlife product as well. And this demand for wildlife products that not stop at the local level, but international level too. And we know that um, the last rhino of Vietnam has been killed in around 2010s. Around this time, is the sales for illegal rhino horn trade and consumptions within Vietnam uh, increased hugely, and the country had been the blame for the killing of rhino in Africa. Going into Vietnam nowadays in 
2020-2022, you can still find um, wildlife products such as the, the lion bones can be advertised on Facebook and can be sell on the streets as an alternative for uh, tiger bones. So this this just show that this demand for wildlife products uh, in Asia, in the Mekong area, where there are so many mega rich people, it's becoming a threat for global wildlife. I have a quick follow-up, if I can. What about the situation with the trade in terms of live tigers and tiger body parts? I understand that this has seriously threatened the species' survival. You talked about, you know, threatening the survival of species globally, but I think the tigers are probably one of the most obvious examples of how this trade is is, is having an impact on, on the survival of a species. Yes, it is a serious threat to the survival of tiger. Um, under 2007 site decisions, um, tiger should only be bred for conservation purpose. But we seen from evidence that is quite a few countries, including the Mekong countries, such as Laos, China, Vietnam, and Thailand, has been disregarding of these um, decisions. For example, we see that the lucky seizure of live tiger in Vietnam last year in 2021, with a total of 27 individuals, seven of them were live tiger cubs, and the um, other tigers were seized from a captive breeding facilities and considering they were prepared to be transported elsewhere, it is clear that there's a huge demand for um, the light trade of the, of the tiger as pet as also for their parks as well. Mm, and I want you to touch on these breeding facilities uh, later in the conversation, but I want to stay in this wildlife theme, but uh, turning to Simone. Simone, one of the things that Chang just now mentioned was also about, you know, being able to sort of now buy body parts or, you know, animals online, right? Is this a new trend, this online wildlife trade? When and how did this come about? And, and you know, how concerning is this? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, um, in part because it's it's actually not a new trend, but I think it is often an underappreciated trend, at least outside of the community of, of people responding to environmental crime. The internet has quite simply just become a bigger part of our lives. People are doing all sorts of things that they used to do offline, now online, um, including buying things. That rate of expansion of the internet has been really profound. So in, in 2014, 0.6% of the global population had access to the internet. And just five years later, it was 50, over 50% of the global population. And in Southeast Asia, we've seen you know, particularly high rises. In, in, in a country like Cambodia, in 2011, 9% of the country had access. Um, by 2019, 80% had access. This has also happened at the same time that there has been, um, in many countries, fortunately, growing scrutiny of physical marketplaces. So in quite a few uh, Mekong countries, there um, have been wet markets, live animal markets, which have shut down or have become more regularly visited by the police or, or NGOs, um, including NGOs like EIA, who have done some really important undercover and market analysis work. And that has become a, a more common modality across the region. So while it became more difficult for people to sell things in the physical world, social media companies and e-commerce platforms provided a vehicle for people to advertise essentially for free um, with extremely low risk of detection. 
Across Southeast Asia, we're having conversations with local NGOs who are monitoring the internet who, who all say that closed Facebook groups, closed social media groups, messaging apps have become really the major venue for a lot of the, the retail of small items, whether that's uh, medicinal products that contain, for example, tiger or bear bile or pangolin, or that's jewelry items containing ivory, or the online space has been incredibly important for the live animal trade. And is there anything else beside, you know, this increased access to the internet and the ability to sort of conduct this illegal activity without much scrutiny? Are there anything beside these two factors that is fueling this online wildlife trade? Yeah, so I mean, I think within that, you know, the, the, the question arises, why is why is it so low risk for people to operate online? And what we really see is, is this perfect storm of often quite gray legal framework around what happens online. It's challenging for people to understand jurisdiction across a whole range of crimes online. Um, but when you have something like the wildlife trade, where there is often you know, these questions of, well, could it have been produced by a, a legal breeding facility? Could it actually be this other species, which it is legal to trade? And then you combine that with uh, legal frameworks, which often don't clearly state that technology companies have a legal liability for hosting the content. It makes it an extremely complicated environment in, in which law enforcement can have a role. And it's also one in which they don't, it is not particularly prioritized. Often other online crimes are, are given what small amount of resources there are for um, dealing with cyber-enabled crime. Um, I think in the, in the Mekong regions, we actually do see that there, there are quite a lot of well-capacitated um, cybercrime teams um, and, a, and a capacity in the state, but it's not always a, a priority cracking down on this trade online. And then, of course, um, you know, I, I think that really there needs to be more responsibility from the private sector side. Um, you know, my, my preference would be for that to be a, a legal liability to, to have a proper enforcement strategy. Um, but while that doesn't exist, we don't see really particularly impressive um, self-regulation attempts by some of the richest companies in the world um, to deal with this problem. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because we are only talking about in terms of law enforcement without actually looking at the platforms that are perhaps enabling all of this to thrive, right? Um, that's an interesting perspective. I haven't actually thought of thought of that. I was looking at more from the law enforcement side. I want to hear a little bit more about illegal logging now. And Julian, I, I want to turn to you. I mean, I used to live in Vietnam and, 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 you know, travel extensively to Cambodia and Laos. And of course, I'm from Burma, so I'm familiar with how devastating this issue is. But I still think that what we can see is just a little bit of uh, the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, you gave two shocking examples just now about illegal logging that went undetected until your organization exposed it. Is it accurate to say that, you know, the, the, the real scale of illegal logging and the problem could be far more than we anticipate or we expect? Well, it's a constantly shifting situation. I think the dynamics of illegal logging in the Mekong are dictated by market demands. So a sudden demand for a type of timber species in a place like China, for example, can, can rapidly transform itself into logging on the ground. And I think Rosewood is a real good example of that. Until about 10 or 15 years ago, Rosewood, which was found in quite a few Mekong countries, particularly Thailand and Laos, was largely untouched. I mean, it was, wasn't used commercially. Um, and suddenly in China, this demand sprung up for a type of furniture called Hongmu, 
it's like a traditional sort of emperor style furniture which is quite historical in china and rosewood was a perfect wood for these for these furniture in fact there's a list of different species that can be said to be hongwu and the rosewood species are mainly on that so pretty quickly when that demand started kicking in you start seeing logging gangs turning up in places like eastern thailand in search of Siamese rosewood, which is known as Dalbergia conscientiensis by its Latin name. And suddenly overnight, these logging gangs were turning up. They were getting locals to go into the forest and spot these trees. And it led to huge outbreaks of violence as well, because uh, these logging gangs would come across the border of Cambodia. The, the, the sort of Thai uh, military and police were, were getting involved in gun battles with them. This is all to feed a market that was exploding in China. And at one stage, the price for Siamese rosewood in China was about $50,000 a cubic meter. I've actually seen people smuggling rosewood across borders in, 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 in suitcases because that, you could take one slab of, of rosewood and you would make tens of thousands of dollars. So pretty much overnight, this logging frenzy broke out and transformed itself into you know, logging on the ground in, in Laos and in Thailand. And to a degree, this, this has now moved on as those forests have become exhausted. We're now seeing more and more rosewood coming from Africa to feed the Chinese market. So you can see how the dynamics work out. And, you know, there's also other species that are in play. We mustn't forget Burmese teak. Burmese teak is, is renowned throughout the world for its, for its characteristics and its qualities. It's very uh, much used on luxurious um, things like super yachts for decking. And there's a huge illegal trade in, in, in Burmese teak um, that has got even worse under the hunter since they came, since the coup. And we see teak come across the border into China, coming out directly and being smuggled out um, into the, the markets of the West particularly sort of the, the main markets in the US and, and the EU and China. So you can see the, the market dictates what the logging is done and there's a direct link to that. And it's always a mutating situation depending on what the market needs. And people always spring in to, to, to meet those demands and, and pay people to do the logging and pay people off to let them do it. Mm, and, you know, you earlier talked of corruption, right? Corrupted officials sort of like turning a blind eye to some of these activities. But is uh, weak law enforcement also part of the problem? Exactly. Corruption and weak law enforcement are keys, key enablers of, of these crimes. I mean, when you're perhaps smuggling a bit of wildlife across a border, you, you can get that undetected. When you're taking hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of logs across a border, it's pretty hard to hide that. And we've done some work back in the day in Laos. Laos normally had a log export ban. But there was a caveat that logging could take place in connection with um, infrastructure projects like roads and, and, and dams. And using that pretext, groups are coming in and logging lots of valuable wood like Balao and, and Benkerai from the forests of, of, of Laos and taking across the border. And we, we filmed huge rows of trucks queuing up to get across the border. We've got pictures of customs officers waving them through. So, you know, the total lack of enforcement and obviously people taking kickbacks just to, just to turn a blind eye. But this is an obvious, a very visible crime when you're looking at logging. We also saw, you know, quite high connected companies involved in this trading now. One place we looked at was a alleged logging for a hydropower dam in central Laos. And we worked out that the company behind that was linked to the Vietnamese military. And they were cutting way outside the area. They were supposed to be cutting and taking across the border into Vietnam to sell to the industry there. So you can see this goes to high-level corruption and collusion. 
I want to actually bring Chang in now as well, because I think corruption and weak enforcement also probably plays a big role um, in flourishing of these breeding facilities for wildlife. Chang, earlier you talk about that tiger facility, right? And also thinking about other places that range from, you know, wet markets to illegal zoos to farms and restaurants. Can you talk a little bit about these places and how they exist and facilitate the trade and perhaps how corruption and weak enforcement um, helps these places thrive as well, like Julian just said about the rosewood and, and the timber trade. Yeah, corruptions and weak enforcement definitely play a role, uh, if not a major role, in the illegal trade. You can find lies animals such as porcupines or bamboo rats in the local markets or restaurants uh, across Vietnam for meat consumptions with illegal zoo, and especially in the case of country like Vietnam, where recently we see a surge in the establishment of private zoos also have a very important role in the illegal trade of live animals, uh, especially of the protected endangered animals. There are documents and evidence showing that some private zoos in Vietnam having a close connections with captive farms and facil- uh, facilities in Africa and that way they bring in live African animals um, such as giraffes, zebras, um, lions, uh, into Vietnam. There was a case a few years ago when investigation journalists got some evidence to show that this particular private zoo did not have any permit to bring in African uh, species into the countries. The, author- uh, the local authority immediately go on answering the media and saying that no, this place does have it. And when asking to, to show the, uh, the document, they could not give the journalists, the paper water document to show that this actual they have the permits. But then a week later, another person who was the boss of the person who was interviewed was giving uh, able to providing the document, and it was actually it was backdated to show that this play is legal. Um, so you can see that this corruption is definitely happening at some level uh, or not at a very high levels in this illegal uh, wildlife trade. While working in undercover in Africa as well, I have met with several illegal trade networks, criminals where they supply live animals to zoos in, in Asia, animals from lion cubs, African grey parrots, um, to even baby chimpanzees. And the reason why they were able to operate at such a level is because of corruptions of the people on the ground. People were supporting them. The authorities are turning a blind eye to them in um, local country in Africa, in the source countries, and also throughout all of these transition routes and into Vietnam as well. Staying with you, uh, Chang, obviously over the last two years, right, the world had undergone the COVID-19 pandemic and, and that has really changed, I think, the way we see things like wet markets and things like wildlife trade. There is obviously widespread belief that the pandemic originated at an um, animal market in Wuhan, China. Considering all of that, has have there been any attempts to control these, you know, breeding facilities and markets and illegal zoos better in, in, in Vietnam or in the Mekong region in general? Yes, in response to COVID-19, the Vietnamese um, Prime Minister Nguyen Xuân Phúc decided an order to ban all imported wildlife for zoo as well as for educational purpose, um, whether dead or alive, in including eggs and larvae in 2020. And China also declared an 
immediate and comprehensive bans on the trade and consumption of wild animals. We've seen uh, province of China, Southern Guangdong, has already banned wild animals as pets. Um, pangolin scales have been removed as a key ingredient in traditional Chinese medicines, although it's still included as an ingredient in the patent medicine in 2020. However, it is very important um, to note that although these bans and these reactions from these countries have been a result of the pandemics, but they can resolve and resume this ban at any time as well. We've seen an example of uh, 2003 when China banned consuming civets due to SARS outbreak, but then under pressure from wildlife traders and farmers, they have been re- reversed. And seeing now that Pretty much everywhere in the world, uh, many countries in the world, things are returning to normals. It is possible that Vietnam, China and many other countries might leave this ban again. Speaking of, you know, attempt to control illegal activities in terms of environmental crimes, um, Julian, have the logging bans introduced in countries like Thailand, Vietnam, China and Cambodia quite recently, have they been effective at all? I think to a degree, these logging bans in places like Vietnam and uh, particularly have been effective in stabilizing the forest cover. I mean, you know, stopping the, the, the loss of forests. But it's quite ironic that countries like Vietnam and, and Thailand and also China has a logging ban. Countries that have taken steps to protect their own forests have allowed, you know, big processing sectors to grow in their countries, like Vietnam, which demand lots of imports from wood around the world. So it's ironic that while these countries have been protecting their own forests, they're not averse to bringing in timber from across the world to, to feed their growing industry for wood process, products. So that's that's a downside of, of that. Also, it's worth import, pointing out that another important measure are demand-side measures as well. A lot of the timber processed in Mekong countries is, is bound for the international market like Europe and America. And over the last few years, a lot of groups like EIA and others have been pushing for demand-side measures that have come to fruition. So in the EU, you know, the European Union Timber Regulation, which which seeks to prevent the import of illegally logged timber. You have a similar measure in America called the US Lace Act Amendment. So these are determined to try and remove illegal wood from the marketplace. They have succeeded in some ways. There have been quite a few seizures, for example, taking place recently in um, Europe of, of Burmese teak, which is you know which is found by European authorities to be illegal because you cannot show where it comes from. And interestingly as well, the Myanmar Timber Enterprise, which is the parastatal body that oversees the timber trade in Myanmar, uh, has now been sanctioned because uh, you know we know a lot of that wood. Uh, the money from that wood goes to the to the hunter. So there's another legal tool there to try and use to, to, to choke off the supply of money to the hunter provided through the teak trade, for example. And also, of course, we've over the last few years, we've seen more and more timber species listed on the UN Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. For example, CME's rosewood I mentioned earlier is now on that on that convention. So there's another tool that can be used for disrupting the, the illegal logging that's taking place in the Mekong. That's really interesting. I want to come back to all of you later on, you know, some of the practical things that can be done to to tackle the, the these crimes. Um, and those are definitely great, great tips to start. But Simone, I want to actually come to you now to talk about illegal sand mining, because that seems to be the biggest type of non-renewable resource crime in, in, in the Mekong. Can you tell us a bit about why, who are involved, you know, which are the main source countries and destinations? And also, whenever people hear about sand mining or, or just even hear about, you know, my illegally mining sand, they think this is a naturally abandoned material. And why is the big, why is this a big issue? So if you can tackle that as well, that'd be great. 
I find the question of where does illegal sand mining come from and, and why does it occur and how do we deal with it entirely fascinating because I think it's such a good example of how environmental crimes are so closely linked to questions of international development. For people who, who, who may not know, um, sand is legally mined because it is a major ingredient in concrete. And one of the major drivers of um, burgeoning uh, sand mafias or criminalizations of the sand extraction industry in various parts of the world has simply been that um, the world has been urbanizing uh, incredibly quickly. More than 50% of the world um, has been living in a city since around two, two, 2010. And and over the next three decades, there will be about 2.5 billion more um, people on the planet, many of them also um, moving to urban areas. And that creates a huge need for infrastructure, uh, for bridges and roads and for residential buildings, which uh, right now is, uh, are often made with cement. Um, and in the Mekong region, uh, there is a particularly acute problem with illegal sand mining in Cambodia. Somewhat along the lines of you know what Julian was talking about with the timber industry and um, you know timber not being an easy product to smuggle across a border, sand is likewise something that has to be you know, industrially or semi-industrially extracted. Um, it's often people use diggers or they use dredges to get it off the bottom of lakes, and it's uh, shipped by the ton. So it's not a very subtle criminal industry if I can put it that way, and um, often happens with a high degree of state collusion um, or collusion of, of, of state agencies. In Cambodia, one of the most difficult aspects of the criminal economy is that the facilitators and beneficiaries are thought to be members of the ruling elite, which obviously makes it quite difficult to tackle. In Cambodia, sand is both being used for a, a, a massive construction boom within the capital, Phnom Penh, but it's also being exported. The UN has commented that there is significant underreporting of the amount of sand Cambodia exports to Singapore in particular, but it's quite likely that um, Cambodian sand is going to other parts of the region um, or even potentially the world um, uh, because uh, there is a global demand for, for sand and cement for building. In Cambodia, sort of the, the, the rate of sand mining has increased rapidly. So in 2019, 6 million cubic meters um, were extracted. Uh, in 2020, almost 12 million. And that rate of extraction is projected to increase um, over the coming years. And it's fascinating to hear that, you know, illegal sand mining is an un unintentional consequence of um, d development. But what about in terms of the consequences of sand mining, you know, what does, how does it affect the local ecosystem or the local communities? Sure. So actually, so this is, is returning to a point that you had asked me about. Um, why is sand um, non-renewable? Uh, sand is often created over extremely long periods of time through e erosion. Uh, not all sand is, is made equal as well. This is something that I've also come to understand looking at this issue, is only very specific types of sort of size of grain of sand are suitable for the cement industry, which means that, you know, particular parts of the world or particular beaches or particular river systems become very heavily targeted um, for the resource. While there is a certain amount of um, sort of a natural replenishment um, within the natural system, it happens over a far longer time scale than occurs at, at the rate, current rate of extraction. 
And some of the consequences for that include quite simply the, the erosion of riverbanks. And that can, you know, both uh, cause people's villages to subside or houses to subside into the river. It can cause um, the land they use to grow crops to subside into the river. It can even undermine major infrastructure like bridges. It's also obviously extremely disturbing to the, to the, to the riverbed ecosystem to have that kind of um, industrial extraction happening. What about other non-renewable resources? We talked quite a lot about, you know, sand, but are there any other minerals or resources that are also being mined illegally? We've touched on it a bit, but the, Myanmar is a, is a country with, with several um, highly valuable um, extractive resources. So um, there's gold, there are gems, jade, uh, Julian mentioned. There's also the criminal markets around non-renewable resources also include commodities which are not necessarily being sourced in the region. So gems is a good example. Thailand provides one of the biggest illicit gem markets in the world. And there are gems coming from various parts of the world, including Africa, including Mozambique, for example, um, where most of the world's rubies come from. There are illicit sources of those gems, which, which do get laundered into regional markets in the region. As mentioned as well, there are also criminal markets that arise because of the ability of criminal networks or, or, or state-embedded actors to, to, to leverage the difference between um, subsidies or taxes between different countries. So there's a, quite a large oil smuggling uh, economy between Thailand and, and Vietnam and some other countries in the region. Yeah, that's that's actually quite a lot of resources that are actually being, you know, traded and trafficked and smuggled illegally. That's quite worrying. To Chang and Julian, um, Simone just now touched a bit on, you know, the how the illegal sand mining could be devastating for the local ecosystems. I want both of you to talk about, you know, the impact of both the wildlife trade as well as the illegal logging on the environment. Can I start with you first, Chang? Yes, so the illegal, the criminal activity is also obviously affecting biodiversity hugely. If we are talking about, for example, talking about uh, species like pangolins, one of the most trafficked animals in the world, there are over 200,000 uh, of the animal being poached every year. But we don't even know how many of them are there left in the wild. This caused to the uh, push many species into extinctions and environment uh, ecosystems are in the brink of collapse. And obviously, with the examples of COVID-19, we already see that this activity is not only having a huge damaging effect on the environment, but also on human well-being and the economy as well. Thanks, Chang. Uh, Julian, I mean, we know that deforestation could have severe impacts when it comes to climate change, but I'm sure there are lots of other um, environmental impacts as well. Yes, exactly. There are a range of, of adverse consequences for illegal logging. You mentioned climate change. Obviously, loss of forests exacerbates climate change. Illegal logging also um, creates problems for ecological security. For example, if you clear cut forests and it can increase flooding, so it undermines local communities and their ecological security. But also, aside from the direct environmental impacts, it also undermines the rule of law fosters corruption, you know, lots of money being made and paid off to corrupt officials, and it creates conflict. As I explained before, when the Rosewood craze first broke out, there were gun battles between you know, loggers and Thai authorities on the border, so it created a really, really difficult conflict situation. So a range of consequences for illegal logging, and you really need to be tackled very strongly to stop these consequences taking place. 
Um, I've got another question for all three of you. I mean, is there any room for civil society to operate in the Mekong region and tackle these issues effectively? Or are the criminal actors very powerful and because of their linkages to law enforcement, it's, is it a really difficult thing to do? Again, perhaps, Chang, I want to start off with you because you are working um, on the ground in Vietnam on this issue. I think there definitely room for civil society to contribute to conservations. And this is one of the things when we're working in conservation as well, we must work together. We must involve people from different sectors. We must involve people from every part of the societies. We have, for example, in Vietnam, many organizations and we've been working with um the local people, we're working with the local students as well. We're introducing them to use some of the apps. For example, in my organizations, we introducing students to use this app to detecting songbirds. Um, and the apps, we record the song, uh, the songs, and they also help you to identify to the species. Um, and people can just send us the, the songs and the species identification, the pictures of the birds that they take picture of. Um, and we've been be able to analyze how many um, different types of songbirds are being kept as pets illegally, how many of them are, are endangered and how many of them are critically endangered. And we can share these documents to the forest protection departments um, and so on. So there's a lot of different organizations, a lot of people have been working with different groups of people in the uh, societies to engaging them and empower them um, to uh, contribute to conservation. Julian, what about in terms of, you know, tackling deforestation, particularly because, like you said, you know, these are large scale efforts with a lot of resources and and, and, and with links to powerful people? Yeah, in, in the Mekong, civil society monitoring has been a vital tool in exposing you know, forest crimes and getting action taken against them. Been great examples of really brave individuals who have, have spoken out and, and monitored what's going on in their forest and tried to protect them from being destroyed. Unfortunately, the space for that uh, is shrinking, and you know there are quite a few examples where people we've worked with have come under intense pressure. We there's a gentleman in Cambodia we work quite closely with who's been intimidated and harassed repeatedly by authorities, and in Myanmar it's got particularly bad since the coup, where a gentleman called Jo Min Tut, who is a really brave and incredibly inspirational individual who's been monitoring forests there for years, was arbitrarily arrested and has been thrown in prison uh, on trumped-up charges. So that's the sort of things that people are facing on the front line of this battle to try and save their own forests. And they need the support from the international community, particularly the diplomatic community. Mm, that's a great point about the international community. That's going to be my next question. But Simone, could I come to you next on 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 your view of the space for civil society? You know, we could hear, we, we heard from Chang all the things that could do, but also some of the concerns around how the space is shrinking from Julian just now. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add. I think both um, Chang and, and, and Julian have been very eloquent on the opportunities and the threats. Um, I would merely underline that, um, you know, for the global initiatives work across the world, uh, it's just so absolutely clear that civil society is an absolutely crucial aspect of a good response to environmental crimes. Um, civil society actors perform so many roles from monitoring to working with communities to working with issues of demand and consumption to also you know have historically played a huge role in exposing crimes and in drawing attention to the effects and the dynamics of of illicit markets in the Mekong region there is um, you know there, there are people doing fantastic work but it is uh, globally one of the 
most challenging regions for that accountability side of the work and and speaking openly, particularly around situations where there are state actors involved. Mm, That's a sobering assessment. Um, Julian, you just now talked about what the international community can do. What else can they do besides sort of putting pressure and, and, and speaking out? I think the demand side measures have been put in place over the last decade or so. It's, it's absolutely vital that they uh, they work effectively. Countries should be responsible for the wood they import. The companies should be, be doing checks. You can do it these days. You can check where your wood comes from. In fact, under the European Union timber regulation, it's a requirement to conduct due diligence. So you must take measures to show that you are clear where your wood came from. And if you can start cutting off the markets for, for that are supplied by illegal wood, then, then the incentive to, to do illegal logging will, will be reduced significantly. So it's really important that the companies look at the supply chains and that the government to police these rules such as the European Union Tim Regulation and the US Lacey Act to make sure that they have teeth and they, and they and they put them to proper use. And in addition to that, I said before that, you know, the, the international community needs to be supporting civil society on the front lines. Chang, what about in terms of wildlife trade? Is there anything the international community can do? I think um, international communities can do a lot of things. First, they can educate themselves and understand the issues in other countries. When they go visiting other countries in holiday, do not engaging in wild exploitations, uh, for example, activities like tiger walking or elephant ridings, um, people from anywhere, um, they can speak up and they can use their resources to make a change. Public figures like the UK royal family, the Duke of Cambridge, have been using his status and his influence to encouraging other governments and other countries to step forward to combat um, illegal wildlife trade and consumption of wildlife. I see that these this international pressure sometimes can make a huge change and make a huge difference in the local uh, governments and communities. That's really interesting. And Simone, what about in terms of non-renewable resources, particularly if we're talking about, yeah, things like sand and, and, and rare earth, right? There's perhaps some things that the international community can do. Certainly, uh, I think something that's particularly important to bear in mind for for all of these markets really is that often the worst harms are at the areas of origin. That's where the most corruption is occurring in order to enable people to extract or harvest or poach. It's often where there's the most conflict over how those resources are used and where the environment itself obviously gets gets damaged. I, I think that often the degree to which countries are willing to expend sort of resources to deal with a problem decreases the further away it gets from the direct regions where those harms are caused. What I would really like to see along the lines of some of what's happened with the, the, the timber trade is more of an acknowledgement of um, the fact that these are global supply chains effectively and that c- countries all along them have responsibilities to to take action against criminal networks and, and, and illicit trade that, that enables these flows. And that really speaks to uh, international cooperation, you know, both uh, at a global level and at a regional level. I think there's a lot that could be done even within the region between countries to, to collaborate to, to address some of these crimes. And lastly, you know, for, for issues like sand mining, we see it in, in, in other parts of the world where there are minerals being mined, say, which are going to be crucial for um, the green energy transition. There really needs to be attention to the fact that these industries are, are, are crucial to achieving development goals and they need to be run fairly and not be criminalized in order for, for them to play that role in, in a way that doesn't undermine development. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of The Index and to Chang, Simone and Julian for joining us today. 
the Global Organized Crime Index has profiles on all the countries that span the Mekong region. You can find links to those in the podcast notes. Remember that the Global Organized Crime Index lists 193 countries around the world and scores their levels of criminality and resilience. It's totally free to access for anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to look at criminal behavior in a country that has topped the news cycle for much of this year, Ukraine. Until then, that's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Dinle Wynn. Thanks for listening.